This is exactly right. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. It's wild to think that, yeah, someone's great-grandparents got away with murder. They still got to be members of the Phoenix Country Club and still got to live the life of high society. I'm Kate Winkler-Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show. I've interviewed some people in person and some from my home studio over Zoom. And they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories. And now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. My name is Dawson Firno, and I'm here in Phoenix, Arizona. And I'm a, uh, a freelance writer. My day job is in marketing. I used to be a magazine editor back in the day when these things called print magazines. They would actually <laughs> print them up and mail them to you. But now I just focus strictly on uh, freelance and mostly on historical and uh, true crime. And mostly in Phoenix, right? Or in, at least in Arizona. Yeah, absolutely. Arizona. I only focus on historic crime after the DEA showed up at my door when I wrote about designer drug producer here in Phoenix. And the DEA actually showed up at my door oh. and said they were convicting him and wanted to speak to some of my sources. Yeah. And my wife said, you know, I think we're done writing about living criminals. And so I was a history major, so I was always attracted to historical crime anyways. And you don't have to worry about, uh, you know, them knocking on your door. There is an incredible amount of information out there that's just available if you dig for it and you you know where to look and you, you just keep ferreting out those, dig deeper. Yeah, there's some incredible stories that have just been totally washed away and forgotten by time. You know, lots of uh, crimes of the century that last 10 or 15 years and then are faded. And the one case you want to talk to me about now is what you've called the love pirate, right? Yes. We're going to set the scene first. So this is, uh, I love Prohibition. It's my favorite time period to write about. This is Prohibition in Arizona. At the time, Arizona had just become a state for 10 years. Less than that, 1914, we became a state. And so this was 1922. So Arizona, Phoenix was a town of about 48,000 people, growing quickly, but still a really dusty desert outpost. Some small little farm towns surrounded by hundreds, thousands of miles of desert and open land. It was a very isolated town. The railroad had come. There were a few highways, nothing we think of as highways today, but kind of an isolated community. And I actually came across this story. I was just, I'd fallen into kind of an internet hole and poking around on Wikipedia and was researching the oldest private club in town. It's called the Phoenix Country Club. They're very proud. They were founded in 1899. They have a 160-acre estate in the middle of town. I was researching it, and they casually mentioned that in 1922, the secretary of the country club was found drowned and floating in a canal. I thought, well, that's interesting. And then they just casually mentioned that uh, his car was found along the side of the canal with his clothes nicely folded and his shoes just resting along the canal bank. They also found a little black book with 100 names in it. Oh, boy. Most of them women, including notations. Husband works days, only call at night. (laughs) So I think we know where this is going. (laughs) I thought, well, that's interesting. So yes, it it turns out when they did the autopsy, there was no water in his lungs. He'd been strangled 
pretty much uh, someone's great-grandpa got away with murder. So start from the beginning with the story. Tell me first who the victim is. So we know there's a victim floating in the canal, and you said it was in Arizona Canal or where? Yes, it's called the Arizona Canal. Okay. It's actually this, the canal that still waters my lawn every day, which is wild to think about. So yeah, Arizona was just kind of this big open land. And at some point after the Civil War, some settlers came in and discovered this ancient Native American irrigation system, actually the largest irrigation system in prehistoric North America. They think that up to 50,000 people lived in this area and lived off the farmland. Hmm. Um, they would be here through most of the year and they would move north during the extreme heat of the summer. At some point pre-Columbus, that civilization had kind of faded away, actually called the Hohokam, which means uh, those who are gone. So they rebuilt the canal system and hence the name Phoenix. It literally came out of the ashes of the ancient civilization. So the canals that we still use today were originally dredged a thousand years ago. Wow. So it's a really interesting little little nugget of Phoenix. So yeah. obviously Phoenix is associated with highways and sprawl but heat. The, the, and heat. But the actual lifeblood of the city for hundreds of years was this canal system that delivered water to the uh, citrus groves, pecan groves. That was the, the main uh, moneymaker in town. This gentleman named Guy Dernier, uh, he had moved out from Chicago. He used to work for Montgomery Ward and he got tuberculosis. Which was very, very common. It was, and there was no cure, and the only cure was to move to a warmer climate. So a lot of people came, there were tuberculosis colonies, sanitariums, they would call them. And so he came here, he recovered his health, but he loved it. He immediately settled in and and got a job with uh, the local IRS office and became a tax expert and started climbing the social ladder. So this is middle to upper class is what we're yes. talking about. Oh, yes. Yeah, no, he was he was very well, he was tied in with the very well-to-do, the jet set, the swift crowd, as they call them, the millionaire set. But one person who did not like Phoenix was Mrs. Dernier. She hated the heat and she divorced him and moved back to Chicago. Just because of the heat? That's or, or we, that's well, her story, know. and she's sticking little, to it. The yes, black book, right? Tell us different. Yes, exactly. And there may be more to the story, but that that's what she said when they uh, followed up with her after his murder. Is that it was amicable divorce, and they had just gone their separate ways, and she divorced him. So he was here in town, and like I said, he was quite a social climber. He became involved with the Phoenix Country Club, which is the oldest private organization here in town. Very snooty. One day, he was found in a canal about nine miles out of town, just floating in the Arizona Canal. Fully clothed? He was actually in his silk underwear and wearing nothing else. So Just a pair of boxers? Just a pair of silk boxers, Mm -hmm. yeah. So the original thought was he had gone swimming, which was a common thing, pre-air conditioning to cool off. Police were called. They came out. They pulled him out of the uh, canal, found that he was still warm. The body hadn't gone stiff yet. Uh, and the only strange thing was there were some black marks around his neck. So the original thought was maybe he had gone for a swim, had a heart attack or something had sucked him underwater and he'd gotten kind of banged along the bottom of the canal and that's that's where the, the bruising came from. Are there mechanisms inside canals? Is there some sort of machinery that there, could have done that? Yeah, there are floodgates. It's most, it's, it's uh, all gravity fed. There's actually no mechanical moving parts. It's all just gravity-fed. But there are gates, you know, funnels and stuff like that that you can get sucked into. Uh, I wouldn't recommend swimming in the canals. <laughs> it's uh, it's not safe. Although it's funny, you know, uh, they do actually still have pictures of people water skiing down the canals. That was apparently a popular activity. You would get towed behind a car that drove along the canal and you would water ski along the canal. 
So I don't know if he was trying that. But uh, the police were called, the sheriff. They tracked upstream and found his brand new 1921 Dodge Brothers touring sedan parked on the side of the road underneath a willow tree. That's fancy. Very fancy. They found his evening clothes. They found his shoes set along the side of the canal. So it does sound like he went for a swim. It does. And his clothes were all folded neatly and placed along the front and the back seats of the car. And it just seemed like a tragic accident where someone had gone for a swim. Where are we in his life? Is he in his 30s? Is he fit? Kind of give me a sense of who he early, is. Early 30s, apparently relatively handsome, just known as quite a, uh, a man about town. He was best friends with the publisher of the local newspaper. He moved back and forth between Chicago. He was out in LA for a while. He was in Phoenix. He had some business down in Tucson. Mover shaker. Mover and shaker for 1922. Absolutely. And now he's dead in a canal. And now he's dead in a canal. And so the police start investigating. The first thing that's suspicious is they do the autopsy and find out there's no water in his lungs. What does that mean? He was strangled is what they determined. There's a bone in the neck that can get broken when you're strangled, and that was broken. And based on the bruising, they quickly determined that he had been killed and then thrown in the canal. He also had some scrapes up and down his legs like he'd been dragged, some post-mortem scrapes. That's when the, the heart stops beating, so the wounds don't bleed. So that's one way they can tell that, some, that the wounds happened after death. So their best guess was that he was dragged and tossed in the canal and then someone arranged all of his clothes and parked his car to make it look like he'd just gone for a swim. I mean, that's a lot of preparation. Absolutely, yeah. This, this, this was not an accident. So then there's the book. Where is the book found again? The next kind of bombshell that dropped is while they were going through his possessions, they found a little black book kind of an address book, very fancy, ornate, leather-bound business book. The numbers vary, but the numbers I've read is approximately 100 names in there, mostly females, and 22 of them were identifiable as very well-known society women. 21 of them were married, and almost all of them had notes next to the name, such as husband works days, only call at night. So naturally, that aroused some suspicion. He didn't rank them or anything, I hope, <laughs> Not that I, we know of. Which I know happens also. Not that we know of. Although, one of the things that, again, I haven't been able to nail down is they also talk about apparently there might have been some photos tucked into the book. Some steamy, very... Uh, X-rated photos. Traditionally, a cop would want to start small, like in his inner circle. So the wife, even if she's back east or wherever she is, and then move outward, business associates. Do they just jump right into this book? Do they think it's, what do they think? It's like a mad, a mad husband? Well, not only that the police jumped into it, but this is what's so interesting about newspapers at the time. They printed the address and names of every single person <gasps> You can go to the L.A. Times archives from 1922 in October, and they literally have, every, I think it was 30 women in L.A., and they list all of their names, addresses, and then their attempts to contact them. We went to the door and knocked, and no one answered. <laughs> this woman said that she'd done tax business with him and had no idea that he was involved in anything else. Oh, my God. They literally That's public printed shaming. That's... all of that information. Isn't that wild? Why are they doing that? Does that fall under in the interest of public information, or is that a way for them to pressure 
you know, some of these women and giving them more information? I think it was a little bit of both, you know. Obviously, it was a very male-oriented business. At the time, I'm sure these weren't female reporters going to knock on the doors. It was, yes. Well, what's interesting is originally his death was on page 12 of the local paper. It wasn't even front page news. It was kind of tucked between preparations are in full scale for the 1922 State Fair and the weekly report from the Cattle Growers Association. It was it was not, it was just considered a tragic accident. Yeah. And within a month after the salacious details started to come out, it was front page news and the LA Times. I've read coverage from Buffalo, New York, Lincoln, Nebraska, El Paso, it literally became front page news, I think just because it was so salacious. There were so many details. And this is also the time when the telegraph had come and the wire services. And so you start to see a lot of the articles are basically regurgitations of the same facts and quotes, just kind of localized a little bit. And we know, of course, that the Hearst papers are leading the charge pretty much everywhere for salacious headlines. I mean, it was just irresistible. Here's here's my... Uh, my favorite uh, headline, this is the uh, the Buffalo Evening Times, October 27th, 1922. The headline, 22 dames of society dragged into sordid limelight through mysterious murder of gay Lothario out in Arizona. And of course, gay at the time being more kind of carefree, immoral. Bachelor. Bachelor. Yeah. Basically implies a man, you know, who has relations with lots of women, which is ironic now considering the way that the term has changed. That's a headline? That was the front page headlines of the Buffalo Evening Times splashed in. There's about nine words in there that I think would fall into pretty much any <laughs> lurid story today and then. Right? So, I mean, yeah, they know how to get your attention. Absolutely. And, and again, it, it, there's literally no connection with Buffalo, New York, other than just the fact that this is a uh, an exciting, interesting story that I'm sure their readers wanted to to hear about. So, what did the cops learn from these women? I mean, what is the are they building any kind of a picture of this guy any more than they already knew just from his professional reputation? So, a lot of the the of the hundred names, as I mentioned, a lot of them seem to be business um, associates. You know, obviously. He worked in the tax business and I'm sure was constantly trying to make contacts and, you know, he's a bit of a, obviously a social climber. So I'm sure a lot of them were just honestly, you know, business notebooks. But then, yeah, over time, as they interviewed more and more of his friends, they found out as the secretary of the Phoenix Country Club, the former secretary, what's interesting is a year before he had mysteriously quit the Phoenix Country Club, packed up and moved to Los Angeles. And police later learned while he was out there, he told people that if he went back to Phoenix, he would probably be killed. And it was because he was in love with, he called her a widow. Apparently, that was his term for any prospective date. As they put it, he'd like to go on petticoat hunts. <laughs> uh, this terminology, I mean, that, you, just, I think that's, you can't make these things up. That's turn of the century skirt chaser, I think. Absolutely. <laughs> petticoat hunts, okay. Were they able to figure out who that woman was with the husband who was irate, we're assuming? Yes. I was not able to, uh, neither neither I nor the police at the time was able to definitively nail someone down. But be, kind of before it slid off the front pages, they said they had it down to two suspects. If you poke around online, there's a, a former FBI agent who wrote a screenplay 
And he basically, he has put the name out there who he thinks the suspect was. And it was it was a gentleman very well connected here in town. His father was a judge. Apparently it was his wife, him and his wife, who were involved with sinking the love pirate. And why did they call him the love pirate? They referred to his black book as his harem list. And that just was kind of the catchy name. They called him Phoenix's Love Pirate. Literally, if you look across the headlines, it's, you know, like I said, Phoenix's Love Pirate involved with harem list and the millionaire set is going to be shaken to its foundation. I mean, they really loved their dramatic terminology. He had no kids and they were divorced, right? Yes, he did have the wife back in Chicago. His brother uh, was interviewed a lot and was kind of his staunchest advocate. And his mother was still alive. And she actually hired Pinkerton detectives to come out here and investigate. So the family must have had some, some, some money. Some money, absolutely. So what did the brothers say about this whole situation? I mean, I'm assuming there is a group of readers who is saying, if you mess with somebody's wife, what do you expect is going to happen to you? Right, kind of frontier justice. A little less empathy for somebody like that. Did the brother say something different? He literally said, look, my brother didn't have no wings, but he didn't deserve what happened to him. And he was not the serial cad that they make him out to be. And his wife also defended him as well. His wife said he was a homebody. They strictly divorced because she didn't want to live in Phoenix. In his dealings with business and this being prohibition, did the cops entertain the idea at all that this was mob-related or drug-related or rum runners or anything? Yeah, absolutely. I think at first that was kind of the natural inclination once they started looking for a murderer versus a tragic accident was to blame outside influences, rum runners, you know, all of these kind of easy scapegoats. Nefarious figures. Yes. Those are the best figures for right. me. I love them. Yeah. I think just the more they dug and the more they found out, it, it started leading back further and further to the Phoenix Country Club and these pajama parties, as they put it. So the pajama parties, what was that? They started interviewing and finding out again as kind of the secretary of the Phoenix Country Club. He was involved with a lot of the social events. And so I I have some great quotes here about the pajama parties that they used to host. This is actually a detective Bell from the Phoenix Police Department. Dernier, the dead man, he used to stage pajama parties among the younger set of married and single folks. They were mighty popular too among the smarter and swifter crowd. Several people that I've talked to have told me that it was rather a fad to trade wives on these occasions. Dernier had been divorced, so he was neither single nor married, so to speak. And I'm told he played the whole field. <laughs> and that's a quote from a detective in the in the newspaper. Boy, yeah. amazing how libel laws have changed. Really, you know, this guy doesn't think that his the details of his personal life are ever going to be printed. And now we know everything. It's really disturbing to know that. So. The closest the cops got was to the gentleman that you're talking about. Correct. They got quite descriptive with it. So basically, he was last seen. He was scheduled to meet his friend. He So he, he was living in Los Angeles. He came back to Phoenix. Uh, he actually sent a letter to his mother saying he was going to go back to Phoenix to start a new business venture, and he was very excited about it. The letter apparently arrived at the same time as the telegram informing her that he had been killed. 
They arrive within hours of each other. That's how the difference between mail and the telegram. So he was only here for a couple days. He stayed at a very nice hotel downtown Phoenix because he had left town and was scheduled to have lunch with a good friend of his who was actually the publisher of the local Phoenix Gazette newspaper. At the last minute, he was at the country club and he said, oh, you know what, I'll have to cancel. I'm I'm off to see a widow. I'm going to have a date with a widow. And so at 12.05 p.m., he left in his Dodge Brothers touring car that he'd driven over from Los Angeles. About an hour and a half later, he was found floating in the canal. So there was not a large gap of time there. They quickly were able to eliminate a lot of suspects just based on the fact that clearly had to have happened within an hour and a half. He had obviously gone off to meet someone. And so their theory quickly centered on the fact that one of the wives and probably her husband set him up, which is why he was in pajamas. So their theory was that he was called over for a rendezvous with this widow, probably the same woman who he had been dating and had been threatened and told to leave town, but he just apparently was quite obsessed with. His wife even mentioned that he'd been dating someone. He again called her a widow, but said that he didn't want to marry her because she was much wealthier than him. And he assumed that people would think he was a piker, someone just looking to marry into wealth. So that's what he had told his wife. That's as far as his wife knew. But again, he had confessed to friends that if I go back to Phoenix and see this woman again, I'll probably be killed. But yet... He did it. Here he was. In the last minute, he jumped in his car and went off. Their theory was that he went in the house and the husband must have been parked around the corner or hiding. Or he undressed. And then uh, at some point, the husband must have jumped out and confronted him and choked him out and strangled him. strangling part's really interesting to me because it's such an intimate way of killing somebody. So yes, you would think it was somebody who was very angry. There are easier ways to kill someone for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. And to do it yourself as well. I would assume that you would not outsource strangling someone in your your wife's bedroom. So do they think at this point or at any point that the wife is involved with this plot, and they must. She set the honeypot. She was the 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 trap. You know, again, these these male detectives in there. <laughs> the you know, pot. yes, yeah, that's what they called it. Yeah. And why would she do that? The husband just said, "Listen, this is over. If you want to stay married to me, this is what's going to have to happen." Well, according to police, the suspect, and you know, I I, I can mention who other people have named. According to police, that their top suspect was a gentleman named Guy, also Guy Alsop. He was the son of a local judge, pioneering family, very well connected. He was famously hot-headed, famously large and strong. Would have the ability to choke another male out without much of a struggle. He choked him out, put the deceased man in his trunk, and then drove from downtown Phoenix the nine miles out to the canal, parked, dragged the body, threw it in the canal because they found some tire tracks and some scrape marks that looked fitting of what they saw, the scrape marks on the man's legs, the deceased man, and then drove... That showed he was dragged. Dragged, okay. but again, post, uh, post-death, post Cassie Alsop followed her husband in the uh, in the dead man's car. So after they'd thrown the body in the canal, they then parked it underneath a willow tree and carefully arranged his shoes, his fancy evening shoes right there along the canal bank and folded up all of his clothes. What's interesting, the only physical evidence they found is folded among the clothes was a piece of hennaed hair, 
woman's long, they assume a woman because it had henna hair dye in it and it was long. And the police actually kept that in a safe because that was their one piece of evidence. I never saw anything about whether Cassie Alsop dyed her hair with henna. I again think that might have helped them narrow in on, on the suspects. And was her name in his book Cassie's name? She was. Yes. She was one of the 21 local married society women who immediately, their husbands became the number one suspects. And through a process of elimination, apparently they narrowed it. And in the newspaper, they announced they narrowed it down to three, and then it was down to two. And then all of a sudden, it just kind of started to fade and fall off the headlines. And so he was murdered in September, September 12th. The real frenzy hit in October And then the last time he's mentioned is in December when they have divvied up his estate. It was valued at about $1,500. When I crunched the numbers, it was about $25,000 today. Not not significant, not worth killing someone over. Well, not a successful businessman would have squirreled away, but let's not judge. So what was the next step? Did this all fall apart if there was even a case against Guy, the the killer Mm -hmm. Guy, because he's well-connected? Is that what you're thinking? Yeah, that seems to be the implication. And and so that's also why the family hired private detectives. They didn't believe the Arizona authorities would, would go after someone so powerful and politically connected. In fact, the governor actually held a, held a press conference and announced that he was not squelching the investigation because that had been uh, written up in the press. Basically, the brother had declared in the press, you know, I'm pretty sure that this goes all the way up to the governor's office and he's squelching the investigation. So the governor had to come back the next day and have a press conference and say, I have no connection to this investigation. We're going to follow it wherever it leads. So clearly, it was already in the air. Wow. In the end, do we know what happens with the supposed killer and his wife, Cassie? He continued uh, living here in Phoenix was never charged with any crimes, continued to live a, a relatively quiet life. What's interesting is the reason his name is out there, the, the former FBI agent who wrote the screenplay, actually kind of implied that he was one of Phoenix's first serial killers because he thinks that he might have been involved in a couple of other killings here. He was partners with a gentleman they owned a barnstorming baseball club here in Arizona kind of fought. They weren't very happy partners. And then one day that gentleman fell off the train when they were on their way to go visit another town. So the implication was always that he'd pushed him off the train. Yeah. And then he was also the number one suspect about seven years after the first murder in the canal. An FBI agent in Phoenix ended up drowning in the same canal. They actually, from when they pulled him out of the canal, they found he had a shot through his heart. And we're, ta- we're talking about that story next, right? Yes. And we're going to assume there's no happy ending for that story also. It's actually the only unsolved murder of an FBI agent in U.S. history. So now let's switch gears from the love pirate to a fed found floating in the Phoenix Canal, right? This happens in 1929. Yes. So seven years have progressed. We haven't solved the first case the prohibition continues to torture the United States as well as the cops trying to keep up with yeah. enforcing it. And and now and the, we the are— The Great Depression is barreling. Not a great time. 1929 is um, not a great year. Um, so we are now coming into another body in a different canal, right? Actually, the same canal, oh, just a different geez. different stretch of the canal, a little uh, little further. It floated. He floated further. He was he was missing for a couple of days, actually. Whereas the first gentleman had only been in the canal for about an hour and a half. He'd been in the canal for almost three days. So pretty bloated. Could they even identify him at the beginning of this? They did because number one, he was missing. 
And number two, despite it being hot at the time, he was wearing his three-piece suit. He apparently never went anywhere without his full three-piece suit. So when there was a, a federal agent missing, there was a citywide man manhunt, and then they found a, body, a waterlogged body in a three-piece suit. They were pretty sure they had the right man and, and found out what his fate was. Who is this guy? Who is this agent? Sure. His name is Paul Reynolds. He was from, I believe, Idaho. He was a preacher's son, classic story. This is uh, actually before it was officially known as the FBI. It was U.S. Bureau of Investigation, and it had a 34-year-old director named J. Edgar Hoover, people might be familiar with. He had just taken over a few years back and was in the process of building the FBI into what we think of today. And so they didn't even have an office here in Phoenix. It was such a small town. Like I said, it was about 50,000 people at the time. But it had a big prohibition or a big uh, rum running problem being close to Mexico, obviously. You've got rum runners and you have Paul Reynolds here. He came from El Paso, right? Correct. That was the closest FBI field office. There's still a, a high rise, a beautiful building called the Lures Building downtown. And that was where the uh, the prohibition offices were. And so there's a famous story that every time they would bust and, and catch a big batch of illegal booze, they would big, do a big dramatic press conference and they would smash it and they'd come and get the pictures of them pouring it down the drain. There were actually people in the building who would run downstairs and capture all of the booze <laughs> and then rebottle it and sell it again. And was Reynolds, what was his specialty? He was a very dogged investigator. He was, he was young, but he was an up-and-coming agent. He was very well known in town. He was known as a snappy dresser. He would always rent a room. He had kind of a, a permanent room on hold because he would stay here for up to nine months at a time. Would be based here, travel down to Tucson, travel down to Nogales, uh, which is our major border city. Mostly based here and had a, a room at the Hotel Adams, which was the nicest hotel in town. He was he was very well known, much uh, similar to uh, our previous victim. He got in with the in crowd. He was very popular with local police. On the night he went missing, he was actually had rented a car and was leaving to drive over to Glendale, which is a small city west of here, to go swimming at the country estate of a friend, a friend who had a a home in the town, but also had a large farmhouse and a big country estate with a swimming pool. So he was taking advantage of his connections to go cool off. As far as we know right now, Paul Reynolds is a do-gooder, he's a good investigator, he's solid. But as we know, after people die, we find out things. And as far as we know, the cops find the body and he's drowned. Well, it didn't take long, unlike the previous case where they actually had to to wait for the autopsy results. When they pulled him out of the canal, they quickly noticed he had a bullet hole right through his heart. And so immediately, the town was completely swarmed with investigators J. Edgar Hoover personally sent his top investigator from Washington, D.C. out to investigate the crime. It's one of those, it's only a matter of times before the police crack this. They have literally put the entire resources of the federal government into cracking this murder in a tiny, small town. The assumption was that he'd been murdered by rum runners. The newspaper was filled with, oh, his briefcase is missing, and it was apparently filled with arrest warrants for some of the Valley's top citizens who were illicitly involved in rum running. There were lots of headlines about pardon mills, which is apparently high-profile politicians would kind of pardon and kind of look the other way if you were arrested. So that was the implication was that he was about to crack a case of a bunch of Corrupt cops. Corru- corrupt exact judges. corruption that extended right up to the top. And so, you know, of course, everybody was on pins and needles waiting to find out what he was investigating. Clearly, it had been something. They'd gotten the jump on him. They had shot him in the, in the midst of doing a, uh, an undercover 
uh, investigation, you know, that the town was just a Twitter with talking about, oh, what was he working on? What was the case? What what could have been so exciting that he got murdered over it? Yeah, because there are so many possibilities with a federal agent. Absolutely. And and like I said, just the lack of information that the rumors got very far ahead of the news. Of course, his briefcase was found days later. It didn't have arrest warrants. He had given it to a friend to watch. He was not actively doing an investigation that evening. He was literally just going over to cool off and swim. You know, so a lot of the uh, the initial excitement was all quickly shot down, and you were left with this very mysterious case of this gentleman who ended up shot in a canal. And then the really unique thing is they did, a, of course, launched a citywide search for his car because he had rented this car. He was found drowned in a canal, and you go, okay, well, did the bad guys drive off in his car? That was kind of the thought. Originally, police announced the working theory was that he had been forced off the road while driving down Central Avenue and had been uh, shot and then thrown into the canal at Central Avenue Bridge. And then they had driven his car away. That sounds like mobsters almost. It really does. It sounds like a bad movie. It took about 24 hours, but at midnight, a patrolman walking his rounds found the car. And what's really interesting about it is it was parked at the hotel, right around the corner from where he'd rented it, where he stayed. And they searched the car They found a suspicious stain on the rear fender, which turned out to be fruit juice. They searched the whole car and didn't find any signs of blood or disturbances. And the really strange thing is there were no fingerprints, like the car had been wiped down. Even they couldn't even find his fingerprints on the car. And number two, there were 27 unexplained miles on the odometer. So clearly he'd gone somewhere or someone had gone somewhere in the car before they'd parked it back at the hotel. And knew where he was staying and the spot and all that. Absolutely, yeah. Boy, that's an amateur hour wiping down so much of the fingerprints that you wipe out the ones who were supposed to be there. And so then that's when they announced the theory that, you know, oh, well, clearly when he'd been pulled over, they must have then driven his car back wearing gloves and parked it to kind of be a misdirection so no one could figure out exactly what happened. So that was the that was the working theory. This is planned and organized, and it seems unemotional, which seems sort of different than your other case, you know, with a different part of the canal. Absolutely. This is not a hot-blooded murder. This was clearly planned. It was a hit, yes. And so, of course, everyone thought, well, what's he working on? Who is he investigating? Got in over his head. He was about to crack something. Clearly, there must be some big scandal behind it. The federal agents came swarming into town, and it was headline news, and it just kind of faded. And what's interesting is the local police announced their theory, but the feds never did. They never announced anything. They actually never announced the results of their investigation. And to this day, he's the only unsolved murder of an agent in U.S. history. He's on their wall of fame. And they have just kind of a blandly factual epitaph, which says, despite a thorough and intensive investigation, we never figured out who killed him. And the FBI just left it that, which is very strange. You know, the FBI didn't seem to kind of leave just open ends or even to just announce the investigation rather than just kind of pack up and move on. So again, a little conspiracy, maybe? Everyone had their theories, but it just it just slowly faded from the radar screens. And, and it was kind of almost never spoken of again until the 1970s, which is when something interesting happened, which is J. Edgar Hoover died. And then the wall started to crack. And so about a year afterwards, there was a retired FBI agent who was interviewed in the local paper here. And he basically revealed that the FBI had known for years Agent Reynolds had not been murdered. He'd actually committed suicide. 
And the FBI was so embarrassed by what they found, including that he was a serial skirt chaser. He had gonorrhea, very painful, untreated gonorrhea. He had bought a $5,000 life insurance policy a few months before he was murdered, quote-unquote murdered. And so the FBI basically had figured out that he had committed suicide and staged it to look like a murder so his wife would inherit the money. J. Edgar Hoover was personally so worried about the embarrassment that he ordered it swept under the rug. That actually makes sense. With his fledgling agency. And, you know, they, they were super investigators. They were supermen. And how would it look if one of them had, one, been a serial skirt chaser, a drinker in the middle of Prohibition? Well, come on. I mean, I would guess in, in the FBI, you could probably throw a rock and hit one of them. Yes. But you're right. Public perception Public would be perception different. was that, yes, they were these morally uptight son of preachers. G-men. Absolutely. Yep. And so he had untreated gonorrhea. Yes, apparently very painful. But... Then, of course, the question becomes, well, how did his car get back to the hotel? And that was kind of just this left out there hanging. And so I I kept digging. I was reading through the historical record. I was reading the, it was called the Arizona Republican. Uh, It was the the big paper in town. It's now the Arizona Republic. And so I was reading their write-up about his final day and all the people who'd seen him there at the Hotel Adams and taking notes and dressed in his ever-present three-piece suit and had done his usual rounds and nothing seemed amiss. So I'm reading this uh, newspaper and I I happen to notice that there's an ad for a, uh, a bus service that runs every 15 minutes. It's called the Central Avenue Bus and it runs round trip from the Hotel Adams to the Central Avenue Canal. So and how far so, of a walk from that bus stop to the canal where he went? Very it, Right there? Right there. Oh, there you go. Yeah, door-to-door service. It's so hard to think that somebody would do that. That still just seems, so he shot himself in the heart. And, and then jumped. On the bridge. And then fell into and the water. And fell into the water. Why was it so important for him to cover up a suicide and to make it look like murder? Oh, um, for the insurance money. For the insurance money. Yeah, because he was killed in the line of duty. And so he got all the full benefits. They were uh, apparently estranged but not divorced, um, him and his wife. And so she got the full benefits of being a widow of a slain federal agent and got the benefits of his new life insurance policy. None were the wiser for a good 50 years. No one except the FBI knew the real story. Wow, that's an incredible story. And the suspect from your first case was briefly a suspect in this case. That's correct. Yeah. They're, they're, the skirt chasing element, yes. I'm assuming, came yeah. back. Yeah. And so a lot of this came out. Another retired investigator sued the FBI for access to the case file. They had claimed it had burned in a fire. They claimed that on a lawsuit. And then he sued them because he was he knew that it wasn't and was able to prove it in court. And they had to give him access to the case file. Now, he hasn't shared that information. He's not legally allowed to, but he was given access to it to write his book. The book never came out, which is interesting, but all of his notes and his theories are out there. And one of his theories is that the main suspect in both of these cases was one of Phoenix's first serial killers, Guy Alsop. Very hot-headed, large and strong, powerful. Jealous, apparently. So this former agent's theory was that, yeah, he had murdered Guy Dernier and thrown him in the canal for having an affair with his wife. He was apparently one of the first people that the FBI looked at when they came to town to investigate the Paul Reynolds murder. Clearly, the the local police must have known this is a guy you want to look at. Oh, boy. Even though they didn't share that with the public. 
But yeah, they clearly shared that with their fellow investigators. But he was cleared. And and I had asked you this before, but do Cassie and Guy end up like having kids? Do things sort of they, Yeah, things just continued life? on. You know, he I think he lived until the, the late 40s. He didn't live a, a very long life, but was was never charged with a crime, was never held accountable. If, if he did do any of these actions, he just continued to live a life of the, the judge's son and the socially connected, you know, the, the baseball fan. There are these... Two theories in the murder of Paul Reynolds. There's the suicide and the FBI mm-hmm. stamped out the case because of embarrassment mm-hmm. of this man. And then there is this very jealous husband who shot and killed him. Which theory makes the most sense to you? I do think Paul Reynolds committed suicide. I think that is, uh, is pretty clear, mostly by the way the FBI handled it. I wrote an article about it for Phoenix Magazine, and I asked for a comment, and they— not surprisingly, never got back to me. So you know what I think is interesting about both of these stories is these are not only two men who were killed, but went unsolved. And not only unsolved, but just sort of kind of who cares after a while, which to me seems very unusual considering these are two very prominent people in their own worlds. So is that the time period? Or? And, and it was a very small town at the time too. I mean, it's, it's wild to think that, yeah, someone's great-grandparents got away with murder. And, you know, they still got to be members of the Phoenix Country Club and still got to live the life of high society. And, you know, what's interesting about Phoenix is it's, number one, it's a very young town. It's older than you think, as we mentioned, the roots of it, at least. It goes back to to a prehistoric Native American farming civilization where it was basically built upon those ruins. It is a very young town, and yet it's now the fifth largest city in the nation. You don't get that big that fast without cutting a lot of corners, without a lot of land fraud. Fast tracking things. In Phoenix, the line between politician and criminal, it's been pretty blurry. Back then, if you could make things happen, you became a member of high society. Yeah. It didn't matter how you got there. Yeah, they, but, wanted, uh, they wanted kingmakers, really. That's right. Yeah, and this is a place where people came to start over. It didn't matter where you went to school. You didn't have to know the right people. There was certainly an old boys club, but even the old boys club is very new. Here, you could come and reinvent yourself, go from working at Montgomery Wards to being the secretary of the Phoenix Country Club and being in charge of the swinging pajama parties of the social (laughs) set. No, thank you. (laughs) On the next episode of Wicked Words... Most of the time, women know their victims. They're mad about something that happened and not just wanting to exercise power. And I don't think that that's the case here. She didn't have just one MO. She didn't have just one victim profile. It's just an important thing to pay attention to because who's to say that that's not more common than we think? If you love historical true crime, please check out my books, American Sherlock and Death in the Air. This has been an Exactly Right, Tenfold More Media production. Alexis Amorosi is our producer. Andrew Epen is our sound designer. Ella Middleton is a researcher for us. Curtis Heath does the composition. Nick Toga did the artwork. And Ilsa Brink designed the website. 
The executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. If you are an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com slash ads. And if you know of a historical true crime story that could use some attention from the crew at Tenfold More Wicked, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. Listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.